Looking to generate more revenue and build relationships with gamers worldwide? Let Exola be your guide. Exola, a global video game commerce company, has helped thousands of game developers and publishers of all sizes fund, market, launch, and monetize their games globally and across multiple platforms. To learn more, please visit xsolla.pro slash A-O-I-A-A-S. Hi, I'm Ming Kim from Bonfire Studios, and I'm your host of this episode of the Game Maker's Notebook. Today, we have the pleasure of welcoming Chung Hee Jin, CEO of Pearl Abyss America. We talk about how Korea's unique culture and environment has shaped its games industry and how its companies are evolving based on a long history of international expansion and the ever-growing expectations of a global player base. We hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the Game Makers Notebook, a podcast featuring a series of in-depth one-on-one conversations between game makers providing a thoughtful, intimate perspective on the business and craft of interactive entertainment. The Game Makers Notebook is presented by the Academy of Interactive Arts and Sciences, a member-driven organization dedicated to the recognition and advancement of interactive entertainment. All right. Uh, welcome to the show, I guess. Um, I've never done one of these before, so I'm actually pretty excited. Uh, today we have Chungi Jin. Do you go by JJ or Chungi? Yeah, I just go by JJ. Okay. Yeah, I go by Min. Mm-hmm. So yeah, glad right. to have you. Mm-hmm. Um, well, so let's get right into it. Uh, why don't we talk a little bit about Pearl Abyss first, mm-hmm. which is where you work. Uh, tell us a little bit about the company and then we'll go from there. All right. So first of all, thanks for inviting me for this special podcast. And I'm very excited about just talking about anything actually you'd like to chat about today. And Pearl Abyss, the company I'm at right now, we are a video game development publisher. And probably we are uh, well known for Black Desert, the MMORPG franchise actually we built. And we actually, we are still a pretty young company. Pearl Abyss was born in 2010. So we are a little over 12 years old now. And probably for the first four or five years, uh, since the company was founded, was just devoted to the Black Desert development. And we first launched Black Desert in at the end of 2014. And since then, this uh, eight-year-old, uh, eight-year-old MMORPG Black Desert actually has been doing pretty well, both in the West and the East in Asia. And still, uh, a pearl, uh, Black Desert actually started as a PC MMORPG. But we also successfully expanded to uh, the, the franchise to console, both Xbox and PlayStation, in 2019. And also, we actually launched Black Desert Mobile in 2018, uh, first in Korea, and also rest of the world in 2019. So, MMRP, uh, the <laughs> Black Desert is actually just running on all the major platforms now. And we also just grew a lot. So when we first launched Black Desert, we were still probably like 100 developers only. And now actually we are over 1,000. I think we are a lot more than 1,000. I don't remember exact number. But also actually we are all over the world. Actually we have more than several international offices outside of Korea, almost in every continent. And not only through the the organic growth, but we also uh, tried to grow through acquisitions. So one of the one of the biggest acquisitions we've made is CCP Games. Actually, we acquired in 2018. So since then, CCP Games, the creator of EVE Online, is also part of Prolabis family. And now, not only Black Desert, that is a live game, we are also working on uh, more than a few ambitious new titles, including Crimson Desert and Tokyo So, yeah, I think it's a very exciting, uh, very exciting time for Prolabis. I think now actually we're really stepping up as a global publisher, and I'm very excited to see you know what's happening for Prolabis in the next in a couple of years. Yeah, that's so wild for mm-hmm. me. I mean, we're both Korean. Mm-hmm. I grew up in the U.S. and uh, when I moved out of Korea, it was like 1984 and. It was kind of a third world country in a way. Oh yeah, back Probably, then. Yes. And Korea's really um, kind of had its own rise, and like mm-hmm. things have really been changing. But why don't mm-hmm. we go? We're going to talk about all those things. Mm-hmm. Let's go back a little bit um, mm-hmm. to maybe early days of growing up in Korea, and mm-hmm. what might have influenced you to go in video games. Mm-hmm. 
All right. I think it's just really hard to explain how I got into the video game industry because I think I really just grew up as a gamer. And I think probably uh, my generation in Korea have experienced a lot of things in common when it comes to video games. So probably know that, you know, when I was at uh, elementary and junior high, like arcade game rooms were so popular in Korea. And I used to go there like every day, you know, after school. It was just a little part of my life. Of course, parents, teachers really didn't like us just going there thinking, oh my gosh, you're going to like an evil room and actually you're going to be a bad kid and you're going to ruin your life. But it was really fun. And I think actually I really just grew up as a gamer. And also after that, when I was in a college, there was late 1990s, uh, 1990s. And that was when the, the Korean PC cafes were really popular. They literally started you know, their business in probably mid to late 90s. And that was also a part of a lot of college, college kids' life. And we also just went to PC cafes every day, just not playing you know, StarCraft. And I actually played Diablo 2 amongst all the games. I played that game a lot. And I think actually we just went there even, you know, for other things like just you know, writing, you know, reports and writing emails. And I think it was really just a big part of you know, the culture. So I think a lot of uh, my friends also actually who started their career at video game companies actually really just you know, enjoy the culture. And I think it was more natural path. Actually, a lot of those kids actually really just ended up in a video game uh, industry. But for me, actually, I really just didn't choose a video game job as my first job after college. I actually started as a market research consultant thinking, I actually, I really never thought of just not getting a job in video game industry. So it was a little complicated story there, but actually my father, my late father, actually he passed away last year, but oh, so he, yeah, yeah, but he also actually ran a company that created the, one of the first generation uh, MMORPGs in Korea. So I actually helped him a little bit and I had a chance to you know, sneak peek what was happening in you know, video game companies back then when I was in a college. And then it was brutal, seriously. You know, it was all online games business and the live service was going on 24-7. What year was that? It was like late 90s and early 20s. Okay. So, yeah. So uh, early 2000s. So there were a lot of uh, online game uh, companies that were born at the time in Korea, you know, including Nexon, Ansysoft. Yeah. And my father's company was a lot smaller, but his, his game was actually one of the most popular online games uh, back then. But, you know, it was very common. Actually, the developers were actually sleeping in the office like days and days because, I've done that. you know, they really <laughs> had to figure out. Yeah, yeah you, you know yeah. that, right? Because they really had to figure out, you know, how actually the game actually can do better day by day. So all the decisions on the live operations actually happened on a daily basis. Actually, they monitored and actually fixed things everything you know and there were no case studies back then right they literally right, like figuring right. it out they on the job literally yeah. like had to figure out everything you know they just you know, had to change all the game data or drop rates or you know anything actually they they thought actually could help on the live operations every day so that actually they can see the impact of you know changing those things so I thought, oh my God, actually, this is a really tough job and I'm not going to work at a video game company. I'm going to be a lawyer. Yeah, so actually I started another job after college as a, in a consultant, which was pretty cool. And then for some reason, I think, you know, I actually moved to my next company. Uh, back then it was called NHN. Now actually they kind of like spun their business off to you know, four different businesses like Naver, you know, NHN Entertainment, their game business. Massive and company. Yeah. yeah, and yeah, they're, they're actually pretty big. So I actually moved to that company and actually started working on a video game industry since then. Okay. Yeah, yeah I've got a similar story. I don't know mm -hmm. if this is like a common mm -hmm. Korean upbringing kind of story, mm -hmm. but I immigrated in 84 and mm -hmm. then starting in 1990, I was going mm -hmm. every summer to Korea. Mm -hmm. Same kind of thing. Mm -hmm. I love going to the video game arcades. Mm -hmm. These aren't like super nice. It's like a wooden box with like a stick and like yes. some buttons. You and play, you know, all these fighting games like a Street Fighter, street, yeah. Tekken and... 
Yeah. Or Tetris. I actually, I was so addicted to Tetris. Yep. Yeah. And it was kind of like, I think, life or death situation. Uh-huh. Like my cousins would not want to go because uh-huh. if they went there, they were like bad students and they might get in trouble. Like somebody oh, yeah. might see them. Uh-huh. And so that was an interesting time because I would play uh-huh. video games in the U.S. Uh-huh. and I'd go to like Blimpy or different places, play uh-huh. Street Fighter, play my console games, uh-huh. go to Korea, play arcades for like three uh-huh. months. Uh-huh. And then go back and forth. And then one day, like you said, PC Cafe started sprouting up, I think, right. after IMF. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was right. a pretty I think big it crisis. Was probably right after IMF, or actually around that time. Yeah. Yeah. Late 90s. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the developers that you're talking about at your father's company, they probably grew up in that same kind of environment. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and the inspirations are probably so different. Because mm-hmm. I know, like in the US, I didn't know mm-hmm. people made video games. Mm-hmm. So I grew up in the East Coast and I did the same kind of thing. I was an investment banking analyst. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, man, people make these things? Yeah. But they were all on the West Coast. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, it's a, it's an interesting place to be, I think. Mm. Um, yeah, I think it was definitely a very interesting time when I was at college. I think year by year, actually, things were very different. And because actually that was the time all the internet services were born, not only the video games, but also you know, all the video games actually I experienced first time in Korea, outside of the arcade rooms, were on online. So... Yeah. People in you know my generation in Korea, we really just haven't had that console uh, gameplay experience because at first like she was arcade room, and that's also pretty social, offline yeah. social. And then when we we're at college, we all played online games, and we we're also very used to doing like online chatting, and everything was actually kind of like a started online. So maybe, you know, I think that's really like something Korean developers are very used to and very, you know, uh, familiar with and in the beginning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, totally. I feel like mm-hmm. looking back, all the game experiences I had in mm-hmm. Korea were very social. Yeah. They were yeah, never right. really mm-hmm. about me playing by myself. Right. It was me playing with my cousins mm-hmm. or watching them play mm-hmm. something. StarCraft, Blizzard games, those were obviously like a really big deal. Right. Um, and you played some StarCraft earlier on too, right? Oh, I played StarCraft a lot. And I always thought, thought I sucked at that game because all my friends were so good. But maybe I was not that bad. I don't know. Because <laughs> my friends were so good at those games. I always thought, oh, my God, I'm not really a good player. But maybe I was good. Yeah, and it wasn't, I don't think it was just about the game. I mean, the game is amazing. Mm-hmm. But I remember, like, I've got this story where I was meeting up with my friend. And mm-hmm. he's like, oh, i got to go with my girlfriend to play StarCraft at the PC uh, Cafe. And I'm like, okay, cool. I'll go. We're going to the movie, right? He's like, no, I want to play with my girlfriend. And then he texted me. He's like, Mm -hmm. oh, we broke up. And I was like, what happened? (laughs) And he was like, well, you know, a dark Templar came into the base and my overlords weren't upgraded and she was so (laughs) mad and we broke up. And I'm like, Korea's a very interesting place. (laughs) Yeah, that's not really just a unique story, I think. No, I also dated with my boyfriend at a PC cafe every day. So I think that was a thing in Korea back then. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so mm-hmm. what year did you um, like mm-hmm. kind of make the shift into video games and why did you do that? So I moved to NHN in early 2006. And then I think actually at that time I was really interested in actually learning about the industry finally. So as I said, when I saw actually what my father's company was doing, I thought, oh my God, actually that's really a tough job. Everybody has to live in the, at their office, just not working <laughs> on their games 24-7. I was not going to do it. And then, you know, the industry itself was growing really fast. And I saw this like a big companies like Nexon or NCSoft were growing. And I was also working with, actually, NHN was one of my clients. And I was actually working on, you know, one of their research projects. And then I think actually I got an offer first. But I also thought, yeah, actually, probably it's a good time to learn about the industry because I really, I still think actually the video game industry is really fun. It's very dynamic. And actually at that time, I saw year by year, the industry is growing. There were new games actually coming up and then more and more people were actually interested in, you know, getting there. So I thought it was a good learning experience for me at first. And then I just got in. And then since then, I think I've been really learning a lot. I think I don't think there is any more, you know, more dynamic industry like video game industry is in the world. And also it's related to a lot of other things. Like you also have to understand, you know, technology trends and all the new devices. And, you know, this is also content business. So this also follows like in a content or like a hit business business. equations 
So sometimes it's really hard to predict, you know, what's coming next. So I think I've got really, you know, fascinated by the the fun of working in video games. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I'm trying, trying mm-hmm. to think back. I joined Nexon in mm-hmm. 2003, mm-hmm. and when I joined, it was about 230 people mm-hmm. um, at Sekang. It was that black oh, office, yeah. mm-hmm. and I was there, and I'm like, man, this is a very yeah, interesting place. Yeah, I remember the time. Mm-hmm. You know? And people were just, you know, like mm-hmm. eating ramen, working at the mm-hmm. office, making games. Um, I don't think any of them had any, there wasn't any formal education at that time. Right. It was just people that wanted to make video games. Right. I think a lot of people are working in video games at that time were actually they started in their you know college days and actually a lot of them also were you know like a graduate student section of four working on like internet services and a lot of things actually they did were the things actually they figured out by themselves not really something you know they're like a former um you know like a people told them or taught them but i think a lot of things actually they did were actually what they created you know in terms of you know their products or business models or you know platforms they built, I think actually you know, that that was that was the the fun of working in a video game company back then. A lot of things you kind of like try things, and also you don't need to be afraid of you know failures because people really didn't know actually you know, what fails and what's gonna do well. So I think it was a really fun time just you know, doing a lot of experiments. Yeah, growing I, the businesses. Yeah, I recall mm-hmm. that too. I, I remember Nexon early days, mm-hmm. you never really had to ask permission for anything. You just mm-hmm. did it. And mm-hmm. it was a lot of trial and error. Mm-hmm. And even the free-to-play monetization stuff, people think mm-hmm. like somebody really thought about that. And mm-hmm. I think it was just all trial and error. Mm-hmm. It started with, I think, this uh, quiz game called Quiz Quiz or mm-hmm. Play, And right. they got out of beta and they tried to mm-hmm. sell it, mm-hmm. made no money. And they're like, okay, well, lots of people mm-hmm. like this game, but... No one wants to buy it. And I don't even mm. think the infrastructure was there to buy stuff. Mm. Um, and so they're like, okay, let's just do some avatar stuff. Right. And during that time, like Say Club, all these places were doing like experiments mm-hmm. on selling like avatar customizations. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's how it was born. Mm-hmm. And then more people experimented on it. I don't think it was like a really uh, intentional right, business right. model. Right. I agree. When I actually first came to the States, it was actually in 2008. I was actually surprised by a lot of questions actually that were asked to me, like, oh, actually, how did the the monetization, you know, uh, start in you know Korean video games? I really just kind of haven't thought of it because you know everything was free, you know, by default. You know, all the online services like emails or you know video games were free, and then I think actually Korean developers actually realized we just kind of had to do something just to make money. So it was not really intentional, like, hey, actually, let's make these like for free and let's just you know, create some business models for them. But I think a lot of them kind of started all the services free by default, not really thinking too much. They were like, oh, actually, let's just you know, collect you know, users first and then we're going to figure things out. I think the easiest thing actually for these you know, internet services or games um, for you know, monetization were probably advertisements. But that really just doesn't work well for video games. So I think somehow, I think they just not figured out, hey, actually, we just had to make, you know, some things actually people would buy in games and avatars and other things actually just, you know, kind of um, uh, came up as, you know, one of the really good ideas. But then I think, you know, there were more things like, you know, people kind of started, you know, selling things in game. There were in-game shops. So things really just came up more as a natural flow because the games were free and people just were really just gathered like a, like a, as like a community in games. And then now actually they just had to think about how to make money yeah. out of those. And then when I first came to the States, things were very different. It was still very console uh, dominant market and people were still buying you know, games. So they were paying like, you know, 60 bucks, 70 bucks up front. And they were asking me like, oh, actually, I heard actually the games are free and you guys are actually monetizing in game. And how did it start? And what was the strategy? And I was like, oh, I'm not sure, but we just had to do it. (laughs) (laughs) I think it was customer expectation for sure. And going Mm -hmm. back to the whole social beginnings of Mm -hmm. video games in Mm -hmm. Korea, I think it would be hard to say you have to buy it because then you can't play with your friend. Right, right. Uh, And Mm -hmm. so I think it was just a given that it Mm -hmm. had to be free so that you Mm -hmm. and I could play together. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right, exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Um, okay, so after that, what happened after uh, NHN? Mm, so actually, when I was at NHN, I thought actually I wanted to uh, have a little more experience outside of Korea. So it's also in a lot of stories, um, but make it short, I actually came to the States for my MBA in 2008. And then I did my MBA for two years. And probably the original plan was just to study for two years and go back to Korea. But for some reasons, I decided not to go back to Korea. And I actually joined one of the, the video game companies in the States after my school. And since then, I've been living, I've been working in the States. What year was that? So I came to States in 2008. Okay. So it's been 15 years. Yeah, so far. I, I think I came back. I was in Nexon from 2003 to 2006. I was working in Korea, mm. which was really good for me growing uh -huh. up there and finally like yeah. actually being able mm -hmm. to live there and being mm -hmm. an adult there. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, I couldn't live there. Like mm -hmm. I had to come back. I was mm -hmm. like, I need to be back in the States. And mm -hmm. I remember at the time um, being really offended at first where they were like, you don't understand this because you're not Korean. I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> and then after a couple of years, I'm like, no, mm -hmm. I'm not. I'm not Korean Korean. I'm actually a Korean American. It's like very different. Mm -hmm. um, and I ended up coming back as well. And mm -hmm. so I love operating in the US and mm -hmm. I love Korean culture and all that, but I don't want to work there. Yeah, I yeah. think actually I'm kind of similar. And it's hard to explain, but when I was actually in the States, I thought, you know, definitely there are differences actually between working in Korea and working in the States. I'm not sure right now, like it's been 15 years. I really cannot speak, you know, for all the Korean people working in Korea. But from my experience, I think actually there were still in a lot of things I quite didn't like, you know, when I was actually working in Korea. I think the culture is definitely a little more hierarchical. And especially as a woman, I also felt actually there was, you know, a little more challenges actually for a woman actually working in a, in a company. And when I actually uh, worked in the States, I thought actually it was actually better for me just to, you know, learn things and grow uh, doing whatever I wanted to actually focusing my career. And also because of the differences in the you know, video game markets and industry between Korea or Asia and the States, I really thought it was a good opportunity for me to, you know, learn something new. I thought actually I learned all the things um, I had to know about running uh, video games in Korea for a couple of years. Actually, I worked in NHN before, but things were totally different. As I said, I think actually, whenever actually, I got questions about you know, how things work in Korea, I was like, oh, that's just so obvious. Why do you even ask? Yeah. But yeah, I realized, oh, actually, the landscape is very different. And there were also you know, so many big franchises. And I got very also, you know, again, fascinated by that and I thought, yeah, actually working in the same industry in the States probably is going to give me a lot of different insights and also, you know, get me in a very cool experience. Yeah. So, I mean, now it's 2023. I remember mm -hmm. when I came like late 2000s, mm -hmm. um, there were very different expectations for mm -hmm. our Korean companies and the world. I remember mm -hmm. it's like, hey, domestic games for like mm -hmm. domestic market first. Mm -hmm. Maybe we'll go to China or Southeast Asia. Mm -hmm. And then the U.S. was almost kind of like a forgotten place. Mm -hmm. It's like, hey, if we can do something, they're fine. Mm -hmm. um, otherwise, like no big deal. Mm -hmm. I feel like things have changed a lot since mm -hmm. back then and now. And like Korean companies, I'm going to guess, have way more expectation mm -hmm. for what can happen in the States. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think. That's also true, but actually, I think Korean video game companies, even in early 2000s, <clears throat> I think they actually tried to expand in the Western regions. But and they failed. Yeah, I think actually most attempts actually ended up failing. I remember this because when I was at NHN, I was also working on the U.S. market strategy. And now I look back on what I did. It's a lot of things are really... I wouldn't say nonsense, but I worked on a lot of strategies, but I worked on them without knowing actually what the market really is like. So I think a lot of Korean companies actually attempted to you know, expand in the Western regions, even back then. But it was probably not really noticeable by you know, a lot of U.S. companies or by people here. 
because I think they really just kind of tried to you know tweak things a little bit or just adopted the same you know business models and do very similar things in the states, believing oh the market is gonna also go that way. But I think maybe it was a little too early or actually just you know you were just you not know, trying something so different from actually you know, what the users in the States are used to. So it really just didn't work. But I think as the market actually has changed over time, I think these attempts are actually working better and also being adopted better by, you know, uh, partners here. And also, I think in the content business, I think in the content market, not only video games, I think there are more, I think there are more nationalities actually seen in the, in the industry as a general and also Asian content or, you know, especially Korean content is, you know, becoming more popular. So I think probably the Korean or Asian companies are a little more, um, I think, a little more brave <laughs> yeah. to make, you know, more bold moves thinking, hey, should this is also market I can enter into. So, yeah, I feel yeah. like some of the early challenges were mm -hmm. like, not basic is not the right word. My Korean friends mm -hmm. are probably going like, to not be happy about what I'm about to say, but I just don't think they've really understood the audience at all. So mm -hmm. when, I, when we brought MapleStory to mm -hmm. the U.S., I remember um, skin tones in the game mm -hmm. and you could select your skin tone, but you had to buy all the non-Asian looking skin tones uh. as a customization. I'm like, what are you doing? They're like, well, the people buy that. I'm like, you can't make people buy their mm -mm. own skin tone. And so it was kind of like at that level. Right, right. Um, now things are different, but mm -hmm. I think back then it was all about like their exposure to the West, like mm -hmm. the US and Europe was straight up only through movies. Mm, right. um, now things are different. So many people go to Korea, People travel outside of Korea, and right. I think we're just kind of in a new zone now. Mm -hmm. um, but back then, I don't, I don't really think it was like that. Right. I think you know they also just know, you know, including myself, the understanding about you know international markets and or Western markets was very limited. So I think a lot of things we did were also very limited. And just like you said, I think you know sometimes actually there were things actually people might call, you know does make sense or actually you know, not really smart actually happened because of that. But I think actually you know, through those attempts and also, you know, with a little, you know, different trend these days, actually there are a lot more, you know, uh, visitors actually from, you know, Western, Western countries actually uh, in Korea. And also actually Korean people also have more experience actually going outside of Korea and experience things. And I think those definitely just you know, could help you know, the Korean developers also have, you know, better ideas how to, you know, do their yeah. business outside of Korea. I mean, Black Desert, you said, is on console, mm -hmm. right? I think once you decide to go on console, you're making a pretty bold move. Oh, yeah. Um, mm -hmm. That, hey, we're going to address mm -hmm. a different audience mm -hmm. than what we have at home because mm -hmm. there is no consoles in Korea. I'm sure some people have them, but that's mm -hmm. not yes, really still, a thing. Yes, still, console market is very small in Korea. Yeah. Yes. So mm -hmm. how does Pearl Abyss think about kind of the international zones? Because mm -hmm. when I was running Nexon in America, it was, mm -hmm. we got the Korean main office building games for Korea and mm -hmm. Asia. And then we were one of the offices saying, hey, mm -hmm. look at us. Let me tell you about what players want over here. Mm -hmm. um, but that was a long time ago. Now it's, you know, Korean companies including like film companies and mm. music, like everything's going really global. Mm -hmm. And I think they have a global mindset. Mm. Uh, what is Pearl Abyss's stance on taking its content and moving globally? Like if you're gonna launch uh, Crimson Desert, mm -hmm. like is that gonna be day in global launch or would that start yes. in Korea yes. first mm -hmm. or how's that yeah, gonna work? Yeah, that, that's the current plan. So we definitely just target the global audience for our upcoming titles and we did the same for Black Desert, but we actually we did it, you know, one by one. So we launched Black Desert in Korea first, and then we expanded to more regions after that. We really want to have, you know, day one, you know, global release for the upcoming titles. But I think it's going to be a big challenge. But I think, you know, we're going to make it. And uh, for a lot of, you know, Korean companies, I think actually this in you know, a global market actually has been very difficult. And um, now nowadays, I think actually they really think actually there are good opportunities actually for them to be successful. And just you now going back to, you know, console, the questions you asked me, I think, you know, when we actually first decided to 
uh, launch Black Desert on console. I think it was actually simply because we wanted to be on more game platforms. We finally realized PC is not the only dominant game platform, but you know, all the Korean game developers were in a PC or mobile. So a lot of them still think actually if your game is on PC or mobile, then you can actually reach to most of the, in you know, a majority of the game players in the world, but that is not really entirely true, especially in the Western regions where uh, still, you know, console is pretty dominant. So we thought simply, hey, actually, you know, why don't we just you know, put our title on console so that you know, we can have, you know, all these other players who haven't experienced MMORPGs like Black Desert also experience something new. And then we worked on it. It was a lot of work and it was a big challenge. But when we actually finally released the title on consoles, we actually thought it was a very good you know, market for an MMORPG. And I'm pretty what sure- What year was that? Uh, it was 2019. Okay, So right only four years ago. Yes, right before pandemic. And I think um, still many uh, console players are more used to playing single player game. So actually this type of MMORPG is something new to them. So I think there are still challenges. I think a lot of people, a lot of players on console think, oh, this game is too complicated or, oh, I'm not sure what to do. Oh, there is no strong storyline I have to follow. I think, you know, the things actually that really work for MMORPGs are not really working in the best way for the console players. So there are things actually we can learn but also, I think because this is also online game and live service game that brings, you know, um, in a continuous revenue stream for the console uh, platform partners, I think they also, you know, believe in the market for, you know, like a console players. I think nowadays console players are also just you know, getting used to playing these live service games more and more. And I think we are also... I believe we are also setting up, you know, good examples yeah. for the upcoming, you know, online games or MMORPGs actually who are interested in, you know, expanding their audience on the console platforms. What was the business model or is the business model? For so we are still uh, pay to play, which means actually uh, buy to play. So we sell the packages. We also have, you know, different packages so that actually people can choose from. So you're buying the the game to play, yes, which yes. is very different, I'm guessing, than Asia, right? <clears throat> yes. So we actually have different business models for Black Desert in terms of you know, the regions actually the game is running. So in Korea, it's actually free to play yeah. and in, on PC. And mobile version is, of course, free to play. So they are all like in-game sales. But for console, we still keep it uh, as a package. But we also have in-game shop. Actually, oh, people okay. can buy things. So we see different um, players and the behaviors, a little different patterns, uh, depending on the platforms the game is running on. But all in all, I think you know this is a um, good example actually how video game developers actually can adopt you know different business models, even for the same content, same title on the different platforms. What were um, some of the like player expectations when you put it on console? Was there any stigma about, hey, this game's from Korea or, mm. you know, things like that? I think actually there were some people, you know, calling it out, saying, oh, actually MMORPGs from Asia are not great or... Super grindy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think there are still, uh, you know, those comments. But I think actually it's not really entirely bad. You know, some people, you know, some players actually like playing grindy games. Yeah. Not because they love the grind factor. They like but the progression. Yeah, yeah, that's the part of just a game experience. And yeah, the, the part of you know, their you know, character progression. So I'm pretty sure there are a very different type of players actually who choose their you know, favorite games actually depending on very different factors. And I think MMORPGs definitely offer, you know, some of the fun of actually those players actually really want to enjoy. And though there is still a little stigma about, you know, games from Asia or MMORPGs actually made by, you know, Korean company, yeah. Chinese company. But I think there are also, you know, players who actually enjoy those features and who actually just keep playing those games. And I believe there are going to be more those players because 
there is a component, you know, we call social. And we actually just bond our players in the community pretty strongly. So I think, you know, there are definitely pros and cons, you know, by having, you know, this uh, stereotypes. But yeah. I think, you know, it's working well I, I think us. at the end of the day, it's just expanding. So mm -hmm. it's like meeting different player needs. Um, one thing that I was really surprised by recently is, I can't talk about the game we're making, mm -hmm. but I did some research and, you know, met with some players and we were talking about the game. And I was so shocked with their expectations. Like, this game is free, right? And mm -hmm. I'm like, well, what do you mean? Is that good or that bad? And it's like, well, mm -hmm. if it's not free, my friends and I are not going to play it. Mm -hmm. And I just remember like 2006 to like 2010 where right. it's like, oh, this game's, I've never played a free game. Mm -hmm. And the expectation has completely changed where players' right. expectations like, oh, the game better be free so right, that my right. friends and I can play it. And I'm mm. like, wow, things have really changed. Right. I think even when I first came to the States, you know, 15 years ago, when you call like a game free to play, then there is like a you know, stigma about that game being Bad crappy. Quality. Or, yes, yeah. yes. So as I said, I was shocked because, you know, all the games were free to play. Most of the games, actually, you know, first generation MMORPGs in Korea were also kind of subscription based. So they were not entirely free. I had to correct it. But because most of the online games were for free, so I really didn't have that stereotype. I'm like, but all the good games are free. But here, you know, in the States, people were calling them like, oh, crappy, free to play. Yeah. So I really didn't agree with that. But I also understood, you know, why. Because, you know, people were really used to, you know, buying things at like a $60, $70 for a great content. And probably their initial gameplay experience in some of the free-to-play games were totally different and really didn't meet their expectations about the quality standard. But I think now, actually, it's been changing a lot. And a lot of people actually just prefer just not playing free-to-play titles and also just not having an opportunity to play them for the first you know, few days before also they buy anything after that. So Yeah, it feels like mm -hmm. it's probably a global expectation at this mm -hmm. point. Mm -hmm. uh, I remember, like, early days, it was, um, you know, you, you, you do it to fit the market that you're going to. Mm -hmm. And then what that ends up happening is like you're forking your experience yeah. and it's different in all the markets. Mm -hmm. I'm kind of wondering like, if we look into the future, whether it'll probably be more of a common denominator or a way to approach the globe mm -hmm. um, and global communities. I, I think that's like the new zone that we're moving into. Whereas before mm -hmm. we used to tailor for the individual market, which isn't mm -hmm. bad, but then you start forking the development, which also isn't good, mm -hmm. right? Right, right. Yeah, I think right before, I think more in a video game, video game companies really just wanted to figure out each market's characteristics and wanted to build up things for that specific market. Like, oh, actually, no, Asian market is like this, the Western market is like this, China market is like this, and then made you know separate bills and you know create different business models. I think that's still valid. That approach is still valid, but I believe including you know Prolibus, I think. There are more attempts where, um, you know, making making it work for the global audience. It really is not easy as it sounds, but I think one thing actually we also tried for Black Desert is just to give more choices to the players. So one example is actually our um, character customization system. So instead of just you know, create creating like all different like uh, all different characters that might work for each market, like hey, actually you know, Chinese people like these type of characters, and you know U.S. players like you know this type of classes, we just you know, had a lot of literally a lot of choices that you know people can select from, and also gave them you know freedom of you know changing the classes to whatever you know they really like. So I think by having uh, players have the power to create their own, you know, uh, their own classes that can meet their beauty standard or you know, whatever should their preference, I think we also kind of uh, met those like requirements that the game can work better for the global audience. So this is one simple example, and still I think you can also make the game work better by you know, tweaking things actually that, you know, that might not work for a certain region to better. But I think actually you can also make your game more global by, you know, giving more freedom or giving more choices to the players so that they can, you know, create things on their own. 
Yeah, I feel like some of the mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> the forking or customization was actually like business related because mm-hmm. I think early days uh, the development happened in you know one country, say Korea, mm-hmm. and then you sold it mm-hmm. to a partner in Southeast Asia mm-hmm. or maybe in the U.S. or in Europe, and all those partners want to do. Mm-hmm. What's best for their players, mm-hmm. so they would come with their you know requests or demands, mm-hmm. and then it would take the game in a lot of different places. Mm-hmm. For Pearl Abyss, do you um, do you manage or publish in all the regions that you are represented in, or do you actually have local partners? So when we started, so you know Pearl Abyss started as a small uh, developer. So when we first launched Black Desert, like in the six, uh, seven, eight years ago, we actually had local publishing partners. But now, actually, we self-publish Black Desert on all the platforms, meaning that actually we just worked on some of those agreements and then we just took over the live service. And now, actually, we are in charge of all the publishing business. Everywhere? As well, yes. Everywhere. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, do you... uh, not in China. Yeah, yeah, totally. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Outside of China, yeah, you're actually... Everywhere except for China. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Do, you, um, do you then use Steam or how do you... Yeah, section of your on Steam too. Okay. So that, that happened, I remember that being pretty controversial. Right. For a while. So we launched Black Desert on Steam in 2017. So we first launched uh, Black Desert in the North American and European regions in 2016. And back then, actually, I was at Kakao Games. Kakao Games was a former publisher of Black Desert. So I was there. And that's actually how I also, you know, um, moved to Pearl Abyss after that. So when I was at uh, Kakao Games, we only had our our own platform for Black Desert. And I thought our brand was not strong enough, you know, both Pearl Abyss and Kakao Games. And, you know, there was you know, this very you know, popular uh, PC platform, Steam. And I thought, yeah, why don't we just you know, put Black Desert on Steam, just you know, making you know, the entry barrier a lot lower for, you know, most of the PC game players in the States. Actually, there was not really good understanding about, you know, Steam and how powerful it can be in Korea, I think. So not many people, you know, agreed with, you know, my suggestion. Because of the but, platform fees, right? Yeah. So yeah. they were concerned and they were asking me, but why do we have to you know, pay 30% to Steam when actually we can absorb all the revenue on our end if we just you know, put the game only on our platform. So I had to go through a lot of discussions. And at the end of the day, I think you know, we just you know, successfully launched Black Desert on Steam. And now I think we are happy about what we are seeing uh, on the on the Steam side. But I don't even know if you know yeah, this. five, Steam, six years ago. Mm-hmm. Is Steam viable? Um, I know it's viable for you know Eastern developers to come West. But is it viable the other way? Now, like, do people um, in Korea or you know actually use Steam? I think there's still room for growth in Asia. So, mm. still, Steam is not the main platform, and most you know, uh, players in Korea and most other Asian countries are actually just entering the the companies, the main website for their PC, their favorite PC games first, not Steam. So still, I'd say, you know, there is a lot more room for growth for Steam because there are a lot of PC game players, but also at the same time, it's still not really working, you know, on the opposite side. If a Western uh, game developer wants to launch their game on Steam, believing they can also pull a lot of Asian players, I don't think probably that's going to work that well as they expect for now. But maybe, you know, I think you know, things are, you know, market is changing very fast and the console market is growing very fast in Asia in general and also Steam is growing. So I believe it's going to be probably better in the upcoming years, but not so what, really yeah, working well. So if you're making mm-hmm. a game um, in the U.S. or in mm-hmm. Europe and you want to go to Korea or Asia, like what are the viable options for you to take your game there? Mm-hmm. So you could put it on Steam, but it's mm-hmm. not going to get a lot of traction. Mm-hmm. I think is what you're saying. What like what yeah. are the other ways? Go direct and find a yeah, publisher. Yeah, I think it's really hard to say about a good strategy for a Western game company to enter Korea because it really depends on your product. But um, I think still probably just know having a good partner is one of the one of the good ways. But also just not self-publishing. If you know, your product is already in a very popular and you have a very strong content then, you know, self-publishing in Korea is also another way. 
And as you know, you know there are very famous, you know, Western uh, games uh, that like are Legends. played. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that are played <laughs> by a lot of Korean game players uh, already. Yeah, League of Legends and most of the Blizzard games are still very popular. And <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure you can just you know, find a way just to, you know, grab those you know Korean PC players by just doing self-publishing. Yeah, I feel like. Uh at the end of the day, it's kind of like, how do you best hyper serve the customer base that you're mm -hmm. going to have? And you can go with a publisher mm -hmm. um, or in the case of Riot, they went on their own because I think they felt mm -hmm. that they could do it better. Right. You know? right. Especially when your product already is approved the quality in the States or any other country, then I think Korean players are, you know, they work hard just to you know, get all this in you know, a market trends from everywhere too. So if they know that, oh, this game is good, then I think they're going to go for it. Mm -hmm. So, of course, for the first time global release, it might be hard just to enter a country like Korea. But if, you know, it's already, you know, working well in your own country, own region, then I think actually Korean players, I think it's highly likely Korean game players already know that it's a good content. Right. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. Um, let's talk a little bit about uh, pandemic. So, I mean, you've been running a company during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. What's that been like running an online game? Mm -hmm. What are some of the, you know, I'm sure everybody went home and then yeah. started working from home and yeah, running think, a live operation. I right. used to always call my job like, I feel like an ER doctor because mm -hmm. there's always something that's going on. Yeah, like, yeah. oh, New Year's Day, I mm -hmm. might be going to the office today, you know? <laughs> I think it probably must have been the same for everybody, but my situation might have been a little more unique because I'm in charge of the, the U.S. subsidiary company for Prolobis. So my team, you know, Prolobis America, is doing all the you know, publishing side work for, um, for Black Desert. And because actually all the devs are sitting in Korea and we're doing live operations and marketing, just very you know, closely working with them, uh, I think actually a lot of things were a little more uh, challenging for us just to have everything just handled at home. So, for example, actually, we have a lot of people actually, who had to access to the live ops tool that can be very risky if actually, you just you know, give access to people who are working from home. So there were some security concerns for sure. And I think actually, we kind of figured out how you know, we could make it work for everybody at first because we just had to. But one section of there were less concerns about you know, COVID. We started also having some people you know, work actually in the office. And now you know, we are fully back. So okay. I would say we are probably one of the companies you know, who made it you know, fully back already. Uh, and How about in Korea? Are they working fully back so too? So they... You know, I think you know, Korea had a little different situation in terms of the you know, pandemic and how they handled it. So there were some times, actually, you know, most of the people were working from home. Mm -hmm. But I think you know, even actually at the Prolobis headquarters, they had you know, everybody actually you know, back to work pretty early. So mostly, like in two thousand, you know, early two thousand twenty, or actually even before that, people were just you know in the office and just you know, work together in person. And I think actually, there are definitely pros and cons for yeah. you know either working from home and working in the office. And of course, I think for some jobs, I think actually, you know, it's totally possible just you, know, you can work from home and be very productive. And sometimes it actually works better. But for some of the cases, actually, you really find it very unproductive or especially for like a creative decisions or some you know discussions where you really just you know, find it ineffective or people that like, are starting out in the industry yeah, i think right, it's right. pretty tough for them being right. at home i think also for some you know entry level junior level people that i think that's not really working in the best way for training and you know all the things actually you have to make sure you know uh day to day to day basis so i think you know we decided to just you know, make people just you know, come back to the office mm -hmm. a little earlier because of that so there were some challenges actually when I actually wanted to have people just you know, back in the office at the beginning. 
But I believe actually people are a lot happier now because there is also fun just to work together in person and have more interactions in the office. And I believe it's a wild actually, concept are, having fun yeah. and making games. Yeah, you know? <laughs> yeah. I think I always say this. You know, we are a video game company, and I hope actually people really work in a fun environment. And actually, when you work from home, it's also really hard to you know cultivate that fun culture because you always see each other just you know through the screens, and the interactions are not the same as actually you, you see the other all. people in person. Yeah. Right, right. So. I really wanted to you know, promote and cultivate that culture, just to you know, work together and have a lot of you know, chats and share laughters and yeah. have more fun in general in the office. I'm curious how people in Korea feel. I feel like mm -hmm. Korea is a very interesting Petri dish. It's mm -hmm. like, hey, when a game becomes popular, everybody plays it, right? Like oh, things yeah. happen really fast. And mm -hmm. I feel like from a development standpoint, mm -hmm. Or just working on any team, like we got a lot of things for free before mm -hmm. we went home. Mm. It's just being able to hear a conversation and mm. all that kind of relationship stuff was mm -hmm. always kind of for free. And then once we moved to an online kind of like off, you know, office world, mm. um, that kind of stuff wasn't free anymore. Mm -hmm. And looking back at Korea, I feel like one of the big strengths that the developers had was that mm. camaraderie. Mm. Right, it's like mm. being feeling right. like you're part of the team, right. not necessarily right. sleeping at the office together. Oh, yeah. Hopefully, we're beyond those <laughs> days. But that mm -hmm. was, I think, one of the biggest strengths mm. of the Korean companies is that their team yeah, morale I think so. was really high. Yeah, I think so. I think there is definitely something you can call comrade. Actually, amongst the colleagues, they're like they literally just not call each other, you know, brothers, right? Yeah. Brothers and sisters. So I think that also kind of come from more, you know, close interactions. Of course, I don't want to just stick to that culture. You really don't have to meet somebody in person because I think that's still more very obvious in, you know, most Asian countries, especially in Korea. People really want to see you in person and finally believe in your existence. Like right. they are like, oh, actually, you're a real person. Now, actually, I hear you. I think there is still that culture. But on the flip side, I think there is, you know, some, you know, good side of just, you know, having that close interactions and wanna, they also want to understand you better uh, as a person just to work with you better. So in that case, I think just you know, working in person together is really important and even critical for the success of the project. So they believe, of course, there are some jobs actually that are still, you know, very productive and that work totally well even without seeing each other, you know, even once. But when it comes to, you know, video game development and when it comes to like a creative decisions or creative, you know, discussions, I think there is strong belief that, yeah, it's better just to, you know, be, be in together. person together yeah. and understand better. And also you can grab more, you know, context better when you're in person together. Is that, uh, is that, what's happening over there now is everybody back at the office and yeah i i think so i think there are still you know some people are working from home in korea as well but i think there is a sentiment that hey actually it's a little better if you just work together in person than you know working remotely but of course i think it's still controversial there are people who believe hey actually it really doesn't matter wherever you are yeah yeah, as long as you're functional and just get your job done, it really doesn't matter actually whether you see that person, you know, in face to face or not. But I believe, you know, in some of the industries, like in you know, the video game industries, definitely there are things actually that can work better when you know people actually work in person together. Not yeah. everything though. Yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. I agree. So you said Perlibus mm -hmm. has roughly a thousand people now. A uh, lot more than thousand. I have to look at the numbers again, but probably including CCP, actually, we're a lot more than a thousand. But even actually for Prolabis and it's in you know, international subsidiaries, I'm pretty sure, yeah, we're over a thousand. How many worldwide. of those are uh, on the development side, like making games? Uh, I also have to look at the number, the exact numbers, but I would say roughly like a 70, over 70 person. Okay. are the developers is all the funding coming from internal or because that used to be a different thing too is like hey you want to make a game you yes. start finding mm -hmm. different you know regional publishers to fund mm -hmm. the game i feel like that's not happening as much these yeah. days mm -hmm. yeah. yeah especially for us you know we just self-fund everything and it's a public company now right yes 
Okay. Mm-hmm. So you have to do the quarterly yeah, updates. Yeah, and- I think it's it's kind of hard for a video game company. But yeah, we also just went on uh, an IPO in 2017. Oh, okay. So How's yeah. that been? I think it was great because we still have and we still had just only one title, especially back then. We had only Black Desert PC product. So I think it was, a, of course, great milestone, great achievement for any video game company to be on, you know, on an IPO just only with one product and something actually we, you know, we're definitely very proud of. Yeah. So it's been pretty well. But I think also for a lot of video game companies, just being a public company is also a little stressful. A thousand percent. I feel like mm-hmm. there's like a, a romance in Korea of like, oh, we're a public company. Mm. But I think for game development, it's really tough mm. because your scorecard ends yes. up being every quarter right. and it's dollar based. And mm-hmm. I recall, I don't know how it is at Nexon these days. I'm hoping, mm. you know, my friends are doing well there. But um, on the road to IPO, mm. the company, in my opinion, changed a lot. Mm. And then once we hit IPO, it changed even further. Mm. And so I just remember like going up to that point, no one was really talking about mm. the money. And then after we became a public company, all the mm. targets are based on money. And mm. so the you know, design decisions and everything is based on how do we hit this dollar right. number, which players don't really care about. Right. Um, and then over time, just things changed. Mm. Um, so, I mean, I'm looking forward to maybe things swinging back the other way where mm. people are really more you know, player-minded and developer-minded, mm. uh, making sure creating a right environment for that creativity. Mm. And recently I saw um, this game called Dark and Darker. Oh, yeah. um, and, you know, it's... Pretty fun game. Mm. I mean, it's got some rough edges, but I was very mm. surprised that that was a Korean development oh, yeah. team, mm-hmm. Iron Mace, making that. Right. I was surprised to see that one, too. Yeah. I don't know how many people they have, but I'm, I'm going to guess it's probably in the sub 100, mm. maybe 25. Mm. Do, you, do you think that more of that will happen in Korea as well? I think it's, that's been already happening. And there are just no one of them, actually, who just made a success debut in on Steam. I think there are a lot of really good developers in Korea that we can call like indie developers or just a little bigger than them because, you know, a lot of bigger Korean companies like Nexon and Susoft or just not even, you know, Crafton or, you know, Prolabis section of four more like a younger companies actually still, you know, create a lot of, you know, developers who really want to create, you know, something on their own. That they not love. really being a part of, you know, bigger company anymore. Yeah. So there are actually a lot of really good, like a small to medium size actually game developers in Korea, like, you know, Iron Mace, who just made it dark and darker. And they're very creative, I think, because they now actually really have a lot more experience on the video games, not just on a PC, but mobile, but also consoles. And most of the Korean developers I know, they are, you know, they eat everything, you know, they observe things from everywhere. So they are veterans on PC and mobile in the most cases, but they also play a lot of console games, a lot of indie games. So they really get inspired by so many different things actually from everywhere. So I think their you know, creativity combined with their strong work ethic, I think they already have that you know, capability just to be able to grow as you know, the next yeah. great um, you know, developer. I mean, it's a wild time. It's got to be pretty inspiring with like Mm K-pop and K-dramas being so huge. It's like, what is it? Like 60% of Netflix subscribers have like watched a Korean drama. Right. I would have never bet on that. Mm -hmm. I always thought like Korean Mm. content was very specific for Korea, Mm -hmm. but it's becoming very global now. Mm -hmm. Um, What do you, what do you think is causing that? And Mm -hmm. why hasn't that happened in games yet? Or Yeah, I think, a lot of people say, you know, uh, like a BTS or, you know, some of the really just you know, popular Netflix dramas the, these days kind of set a stone for the upcoming ones. But I think actually this trend, you know, for K-pop or K-drama or K-movies actually has started a long time ago. So if you remember, actually, even like a 10 years ago, 15 years ago, there are a lot of like a Korean, you know, K-pop idols actually really just not try to enter the U.S. market and, you know, the Western market just by doing a lot of things. But they did small things, but they really just never, you know, got this big 
as they made it in asia it was like go to japan or go to china and taiwan Mm -hmm. and the whole korean wave thing and then Mm -hmm. all of a sudden that swelled and gone yeah right yeah but you know before like a long time ago like even like a big bang or wonder girls like a most like a first generation of like a k-pop idols they also tried a lot of things but they never got really just a big fandom but and then you know sai you know gangnam style got really popular and then there were a couple of more before you know bts or blackpink got really popular like become like such a big you know phenomenon these days and the same for you know movies or k-dramas i think actually the trend actually has started like in you know, a 10 years ago 15 years ago but now i think from all the trails actually you know, the the previous you know content developers actually made or just you know, the trial and errors actually they made i think the new ones actually found a better way to make a success and i think a while actually they were doing that there were more communities actually who were following the k content and i think actually be, uh if we really just didn't have the previous ones i think the new ones really just you know, couldn't find a good way just to make a successful debut actually on their own so i think actually there were you know step by steps actually just you know, before and also behind the scenes there were literally a lot of you know a lot of tears and and the sweats and everything actually you know, they actually just you know put as an ingredient for the coming ones and i think those really just you know, made all this you know k-pop or k-drama or k-movies like a syndrome like a phenomenon like this big nowadays so i think for the k-games i just say like a k-games now but i think you know we are also probably following very similar steps because there are more and more you know korean games actually they're becoming popular in the western audience small and big including ourselves and in you know, the dark and darker and so many others and i think it's now people are realizing even without just you know being fully aware of the origin or nationality of a game content they're already playing a lot of korean games even realizing should they're actually playing a specific korean uh, developer's title so i think probably all this combined i think probably there are lot bigger korean video game franchise probably in the upcoming years and i i, I believe it that's going to happen for sure and also i also get a lot of questions about why actually you know, uh these you know korean pop or korean you know music drama or all this you know korean content are being so popular these days but as i th- said i think actually you know, there are a lot of you know ideas all the time i think a korea is um after i came to the states i realized actually korea is a very unique market as you said there is a big fashion like every year like yeah. people follow big fashion when it comes to music when it comes to food restaurants when it comes to like a specific hangout neighborhood it's fast it's fast it's a big fad every year now you know after you know 15 years i left korea i even don't know what's really popular in korea anymore because it changes you know every year and people follow that even for women's you know clothing if i go back to korea people say like oh my god actually you're wearing something that was popular 10 years ago you have to wear this because <laughs> now this is a trend so there is a very strong fashion in everything and once one thing is really popular then whether you're you know feels like older, it's so yeah. community driven yeah very right. community driven people always talk about those like you know popular dramas and popular music in all their you know communities online offline and then people really just try that so it's kind of like all or nothing market because one section of you are really popular in a certain segment it spreads out very quickly it's not that you know you're only popular in 20 something segment it's not that you know you're only popular in you know high school girl segment one section of things are popular even when it's like a subculture it kind of spreads out very quickly and kind of become very dominant but the bad thing is it also kind of fades out pretty quickly so yeah. you really have to you know keep you know changing things so that you know you can continue your business so i think korean people are really used to surviving in that environment they just keep thinking about harsh. Yeah, yeah how to make your business just you know, go on and on because things change very fast and also i think still people work really really hard just yeah. to you know get through those you know like a strong fashion so I think just combining those um culture and trend in you know most of the industries 
I can tell, you know, there are a lot of you know, creative ideas. Actually, people really just know, like, it bring up, you know, through a lot of competitions. Oh, yeah, one more thing. I think the culture itself is very competitive. Yeah. I think Korean culture, I'm not sure, but, yeah, that's actually my personal, personal opinion. It's a high achiever culture. Yeah, 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 definitely. So very competitive culture. So you really just have to always, like, compete with others and get the best place, getting the best place. That's, I think, kind of ingrained in everybody's mindset. Yeah. So... A lot of it's very external, though. I'm hoping mm -hmm. that, um, this is my opinion, but mm -hmm. I feel like the future is going back, internalizing what mm -hmm. matters to you, mm -hmm. which I think is happening more in Korea these days. Mm -hmm. Before it was like, hey, what does my parents want me to be? Or right. what is the market mm -hmm. saying I should be? Should I be a doctor or a lawyer? It's like very external. Mm -hmm. And these days I feel like it's changing. It's like, what do mm -hmm. I want for myself? Yeah, I can what see that I, too. What do right. my customers want? Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's just the advent of, social media, et cetera, mm -hmm. allows creators in Korea to be able to see mm -hmm. their global audience and understand them better. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm hoping from a development standpoint, mm -hmm. things like Dark and Darker, that people really go back to right. their center to be like, what do I really care about? Mm -hmm. what, am, what do I want to make? Right, uh, right. You know. Yeah, I definitely can see that trend. So on top of that soil, you know, combined with like hard work and kind of competition and, you know, always having to you know, achieve something better, and also nowadays, actually, people really want to also create, you know, something of their own, more unique, something actually they really can show themselves. So in terms of the content, I think there are more varieties and there are more creativities than before. So I think probably those are kind of like a stepping, you know, this environment for a Korean content developers to be able to, you know, succeed better in the global market, I think. I'm excited mm -hmm. about it. Yeah. Me too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I haven't been back to Korea in a while, but I got to go. I'm sure things have changed. I took, oh, my, yeah, I yeah. took my friend once to Apgu mm -hmm. and I'm like, hey, let me show you Korea. And like, mm -hmm. this is how crazy it is. Mm -hmm. Like I take him to a physical place mm -hmm. that's really popular mm -hmm. and it's desolate. There's oh, nobody yeah. there. I'm like, yeah, what right. happened? They're like, oh, everybody moved over there now. I'm like, what? <laughs> right. Yeah. That specific and place. Back, yeah, right? that yeah. That was so popular in 90s and early 20s and they completely died. And it was literally dead, actually, the whole It was like Vanilla Sky. I was walking on right, like... for about like 10 years. And now actually it revived and all the young kids actually go there, I heard. Yeah. So yeah. it's very, yeah, trendy okay. market. Mm -hmm. Well, it's been a pleasure talking with you. Um, wish you the best of luck. I'm hoping to see a lot of impact coming from Korea to the West. You know, obviously I'm really partial to that. Um, and hoping to learn from everything you all are doing. All right, thank yeah. you. Again, cool. thanks for inviting me and it was a really fun chat. Thank you for joining us for the Game Maker's Notebook. For more information on the Academy of Interactive Arts and Sciences, our podcasts and our other initiatives, please visit www.interactive.org.